Hi, I'm Jamar McNeil. I'm Anne-Marie Medawake. And I'm Candy Palmer from the Mi'kmaq Nation. We're coming to you today from the unceded territory of the Mississauga of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. Welcome to a new episode of From Where We Stand, conversations on race and mental health in partnership with Bell Let's Talk. In today's episode, we're looking at the BIPOC LGBTQ plus communities and the issues impacting their mental health. We know from statistics LGBTQ two plus communities and people of color similar to their broader community experience high rates of mental health challenges. Some of that can come from isolation, multiple uh, levels of marginalization. And, you know, we know that not just statistically, but we know it anecdotally as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think anytime we get talking about intersectionality, it's so important for people to understand that every ism impacts you in a different way. And so if you are a queer person, you know, you're living one set of challenges. If you're a queer person of color, a queer person of color with physical disabilities, you know, there's just all these different levels and, and they compound. They, uh, they certainly, you know, don't affect you in a silo. They affect your entire being and your entire psyche. And I'm really looking forward to hearing some of these conversations today because we've got such a varied group of guests to talk about these intersectionalities. Yeah, and also just to kind of expose us to the nuances of, you know, having to um, uh, navigate their sexuality in cultures that have really deep-rooted homophobic, um, you know, attitudes. That it could be especially hard. I know in my community, you know, in the Caribbean community specifically in our country in Jamaica, like, man, homopho- we are still trying to get a hold on how to treat people um, properly and fairly um, because it's really just part of the culture to really be um, not for that or maybe even violent to uh, a, a lot of folks uh, of those sexual orientations. Yeah, in the indigenous community, it's really interesting because pre-contact, we know that two-spirited people uh, had very prominent space in society. But then with contact came Christianization and the uh, demonizing and, and you know, making turning everything into a sin. And with that, so too the experience of being two-spirited. So, you know, there have been times that I'm in a community and, you know, some leader will say to me, oh, we don't, we don't have those kind here. And I think, yeah, I was at a party last night, Chief. You got lots uh-huh. of trust me. <laughs> you know, we were talking about discrimination, but other factors that can impact mental health within community uh, include even just the process of coming out different for every person, a gender transition, internalized depression, isolation, alienation. You know, we've done a few stories uh, on the fact that uh, COVID and the pandemic have just increased isolation and marginalization. People who may have felt alone felt even more alone. And it's interesting because, you know, it's a, it's a two-edged sword. So often you will hear the argument that, um, you know, you can walk through life as a queer person and, and, and nobody knows it. So it's not the same as, as being a BIPOC person where, you know, you can't choose not to reveal that you're, that you're Black or that you're Indigenous. However, having said that, that also means that for the queer person, they sometimes have to come out 15 times a day every day because you get on the plane and someone says, oh, is your husband with you? And you have to explain, I don't have a husband. Uh, and, and it's like just that constant assumption of people assuming that you're a cis person. And um, that can play on the on the mental psyche to have to continually explain your identity. Right, right. And also just the notion of, you know, in order to function, you have to be unseen where, you know, we'd all love to be seen as who we are. 
But in order to be accepted, you have to be unseen and kind of like part of some kind of uh, uh, majority backdrop. You know what I'm saying? Like to to be able to be accepted and left alone. But what if you were just you know expressing yourself, your 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 authentic self? That being that being seen as a problem is probably very heavy for those. You know, I mean, because you can't you can't paint LGBTQ plus people with a a broad brush. You have all types of people who express themselves in all types of different ways. And, you know, some may, some may be, you know, their sexuality may very be apparent and some may not. And it's just really just a, you know, it's a tough thing to navigate, I would imagine. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is how much I learn in every episode. And I love that it's called From Where We Stand because you really get to understand from where people are standing, what it's like from their vantage point. And Candy, that story you just shared made me think of the 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 risk that comes with every time, as you said, you have to do that sort of coming out process again. You don't know what the reaction on the other side is going to be. I hadn't thought of that before because, you know, you I guess you just wouldn't know. Sometimes people could be very affirming and other times judgmental or dismissive. Well, while we're talking about mental health, uh, as we do in every episode, it is important to note that podcasts, uh, although they're great, they are not a form of medical treatment and they should not be seen as a substitute for any kind of therapy or medication. So if you or someone you know is struggling with their mental health, please consult with a mental health provider. And here to start things off is Prabjot Sira sharing his story of coming out to his family in his 40s. Our first story is one that I'm sure is going to resonate with many BIPOC communities. Prabjot Sira was born in Toronto and grew up in a traditional South Asian family. He says he knew he was gay from a younger age, but navigating traditional family values and social structures led him to marry a woman, despite what he already knew about himself. But how does that story end? Let's talk to Prabjot because he's here to tell us more. Thank you for coming on the show today, Prabjot, specifically because, uh, you know, as a straight man, and as somebody who watches these conversations happen, like on social media and stuff like that, it's so clear to me that people just have no idea what's going on in the mind and the soul of somebody like yourself. They just often paint sexuality as something that someone's like, oh, they're just doing something crazy, right? You know what I mean? Like, or yep, they're just for sure. acting or whatever. So I'm, in, I'm excited to get some uh, really uh, detailed answers from you about your experience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm excited to share. Take us back to those early days, uh, probably around like puberty when you are probably understanding sexuality and identifying your sexuality um, right around the time when you knew you were gay. What were those feelings were like? Can you describe that to us? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, So I grew up in a traditional South Asian family like you had mentioned earlier. Um, My parents had immigrated here in the 70s. Um, I was the youngest of four children. Um, all girls uh, above me. I had three older sisters and I was the only boy. My whole life I was kind of told that um, you are the boy, you are moving the name forward, uh, which is exciting. Um, I did, which was great in a lot of ways, but um, created a lot of pressure that I didn't even realize was there. Um, When my, um, around my teen years, I remember I remember specifically there was a house directly across the street from us. Um, I grew up in Malton, so right by the airport, uh, right by Pearson. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a house right across from us, and it was a woman who used to live there with her son, and her son went to Humber College, and they always had friends living there. He had a whole group of guys living there. And I remember watching from the window, 
and watching these guys, these really attractive white guys. And I was just like, ah, if only I was white, this would be so much easier. You know, I would feel differently. I would have so many more options. Um, and I wouldn't have to work as hard, you know, to have the same opportunities. So when you're that young and you're having these thoughts, um, who are you actually able to talk to about that? Like, is there a friend or, I mean, family members are probably like a little bit off limits, I'm imagining, right? So I was born in the mid-70s. So by the time I hit my teenagers, it was the, it was literally 1990, like the late 80s, early 90s. And um, by the time I hit those ages, I remember hearing a lot about being gay is a choice and you can change that. And I remember watching Oprah and seeing, you know, people who, you know, people who converted and you had choices and, you know, like the whole conversion therapy thing and all that. I remember seeing that and I was like, you know what, I'll do what I need to do until, you know, nobody needs to know anything. And at first it was, I'll do what I need to do to get through it or I just won't do anything. Um, That was kind of the general idea. So I won't act on these feelings. Therefore they won't be valid feelings. Um, yeah, so there was no one, I never talked to anyone. So I've always kind of lived with the same rule, um, my whole life is if I can't talk to my family about it, it's not something I'm going to put out in the world. So it's not something that's part of my identity. It's just, it's not something that's going to be talked about in the world. And all this time you're just having this conversation with yourself in your mind. There's really no one to express this to at all. Exactly. Yeah. And you're constantly telling yourself that you're broken or something's not right because I grew up, we have really close family friends, two households that, you know, had three sons and, you know, we had relatives that had three sons and every, all the guys were guys, guys, they were like playing sports, they were doing things and I never identified with them. Right. I was always with my sisters and like their sisters and, you know, hanging out, playing, you know, playing different games. And I would just, it was assumed that I was going to hang out with the girls. Like I never hung out with the guys. I always found it really difficult to hang out with, with men up until I came out. When I came out, that all changed. Now, a little bit of a fast forward to your university years. Now you're, you know, kind of on your own. For me, when I moved to university, that's when I first started to separate myself from my family and the values and where I stood. And, um, so that's where I first started to do it. So my first year, I was just starting to explore it and I was starting to get more and more comfortable with myself. Um, and then at the end of the first year, my father actually passed away. And it was really hard. Um, basically, at that moment, I remember clearly walking into the house. We had a whole bunch of people from you know, family, friends, and the community. And everybody was over. And it was like 7.30 in the morning. And our house was covered in white sheets, walked in and I went over to my mom. First moment I had with her was around all these people. And I remember my, I remember one of the aunties, I hugged my mom and one of the aunties said, you're the man of the house now. You have to take care of everything. And I was 21. I was turning 21 three weeks after that. And I, and I was just told I was the man of the house. And now all of a sudden my options were taken away. That's how I felt. I felt like, okay, well, now I'm going to do what I need to do. I need to take care of the family. I need to earn money. I need to get through this. I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know if I'm going to finish school. I don't know what I'm going to do. Right? Whereas, like, the year previous to that, my plan was, you know, I was like, oh, like, it felt like the world was opening. And all of a sudden, it was like, okay, no, this is your world now. You take it over. So, um, and in that moment, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to... You know, I know I'm going to get married to a woman. I know I'm going to have children because that was why I was born. And I can make everyone happy. Um, 
And if I'm making everyone happy, I will be happy. That was the dialogue I told myself. So eventually you did end up uh, following through on that line of thinking. You married a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about the, um, the cultural validation that goes on when you move through marriage in your, in, in your culture. Please tell us about that. Because I mean, it's no secret that the South Asian weddings are very big deals. I mean, tell us a little more about that. Yeah, I mean, um, so for me, I um, so I did have a big South Asian wedding in Brampton, like you expected. Uh, yeah. I had six hundred people, did the whole thing. Um, you know, I met met this girl online. She was a nice girl, had her own set of demons she was dealing with. Um, came from a great family. Everybody got along. It escalated very quickly. Within six months, we were engaged, um, and then nine months after that, we were married. With the South Asian culture, you were either a child or you were an adult. That that moment between um, is basically getting married and having having a partner. Um, so, I think after Dad died, all I was trying to do was be the man of the house and be valid, and be you know, and just be like, okay, everything's taken care of, everything's taken care of, and I was just trying to keep everything together financially, emotionally, everything like that, and I was trying to support my sisters and my mom and you know and then kids started to come into play with like my nephews and nieces started to come into play and and it was working but then the minute I got married it was like okay now you have a partner now you guys are building a life together now you guys can have kids and so um it was great I did love I love the being validated in spaces I didn't have to explain who this woman was next to me I didn't have to break any barriers I just she came everybody was at our wedding they knew who she was and, you know, we got all, all the relationships were defined. All of everything was defined. It all made sense. Yeah. Up so to this was, point, when, when you got married, did anyone ever discuss with you your sexuality or even ask, question, any of that? Oh, yeah. It came up all the time. <laughs> I was in the okay. arts, right? Like, once again, I was in the arts. Yeah. So uh, people came up with it. But most people were just like, most people were like, you know, I always thought you were gay. And I was like, well, if I was gay, I'd be gay. I'd be out, right? Like that was always my response. If I was gay, I'd be out, right? You weren't ready. No, I wasn't ready. Um, I remember even when I was engaged, the same best friend, my my best friend Kevin, he actually, I remember because my in-laws were in Edmonton, so he lives in Calgary. He came and he spent the night with us in Edmonton. He actually said to me, are you sure you know what you're doing? And I remember he said that, and I didn't understand what he was saying. And I was like, I'm so happy. I'm planning my wedding. Everything's in a good place. We're sitting in my in-law's house. You know, like, I'm feeling good, right? Um, I was way more excited about the wedding than the marriage, <laughs> which right. I think a lot of people get caught in anyway. <laughs> That's actually really uh, funny. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, I worked in the wedding industry briefly. I will tell you, you will meet a lot of couples that are more excited about the wedding than the marriage, uh, which should never be the truth. Um, sure. <laughs> and, uh, um, and so I was excited about it. So he asked. Um, my sisters still to date, after, like now, they're like, I wanted to ask you, but I just didn't know how. And there were so many people who now will be like, I wanted to ask you. And I always say the same thing. Even if you had asked, it wouldn't have changed anything. You know, it wouldn't have changed anything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just imagining this enormous load of just, I mean, you're hiding something that for some people is in plain sight, but for you, you don't even want to admit it. Um, (laughs) Even though you admit it to yourself in private, if I'm hearing you correctly. And then, you know, you've got this cultural weight on your shoulders of this is what a man does. 
There's no yeah. discussion of, you know, is this what you want to do? Or like, it's just, this is what you do. Yeah. And you do it. And it's like, you know, it's a, it's an Indian wedding. Am I correct? Yeah. Hundreds of people yeah. in front of hundreds of people. Th- this sounds like enormous stuff. And I just have to wonder what is this doing to your mental health all the way through <laughs> all of this? Oh, I will tell you. So, like I had mentioned earlier, my ex-wife was dealing with her own demons. There was a lot of red flags in the marriage. Like yeah. getting into the marriage, there was red flags left, right, and center. Outside of me being gay, there was a whole bunch of stuff she needed to deal with. We had we had started to see a therapist um, nine months into our relationship, just yeah. to kind of sort out some some issues that we were having, um, and. They were, and I remember on my wedding day, I remember I looked flawless, everybody looked great, and I, you know, I had curated the whole thing and it was great. You know, everything every gay boy imagines. And um, <laughs> I had even picked out my ex wife's outfit, you know, like everything. And so she, um, and then she wanted nothing to do with planning the wedding. So I was like, I'll do it. I have no issue with it. My in laws were all coming from Edmonton. Um, the day of, I remember my cousin standing next to me going, are you okay? And he kept asking me if I was okay. He goes, you just don't seem like you're here. And I remember not, I remember he actually described it perfectly. He's like, it's like you're watching yourself. Mm. And I never thought of it, but that's exactly what was happening. I'm really interested in, in what a, what a marriage is like when a gay man is married to a straight woman. Like, is that, is that day to day process has to be uh, somewhat uncomfortable. I think it depends, right? So certain elements were horrible. Like, let's be honest. Um, the first yeah. two years, sexually, we were, like, up to that point, she's the only woman I've ever been with. Um, oh, previous wow. to that, all my sexual exploration was with men. So I started to explore with men um, in my mid-20s, um, up until I got married. And then I was like, stop. I met her, and I stopped. And then we got married for two years. I was married to her. I was committed. And I mean, one of the things for me too was like, I wanted to ensure that sexually I could perform, right? And so when I learned that early on, it was like, okay, I can do this. Two years later, when I realized I was miserable, she didn't, she wasn't happy. Mom wasn't happy. You know, we're living at home with my mother um, together. I was still supporting mom. I was still supporting her. Um, She wasn't working. So we had financial struggles. We had emotional struggles. We had... You know, there was all this stuff happening around us. And, um, you know, and then you're not performing. You you can't, like, having sex was not a priority. And I think, when I think about it even now, like, when you are feeling down, depressed, um, and I think about it now because I still don't, it's, it still feels like when I think about myself then, I don't even know who he was. You know, like, um, it was so compartmentalized that I just, I, I don't know who he was. Like, I don't know how I was going out regularly and having sex with men and then coming home afterwards and then basically lying to her and telling her I have erectile dysfunction when I know that I've just had sex with a man or having sex with my ex-wife and um, thinking about men, right? Like, it's, it's, it's so messed up when I think about those things it's like you're just lying to yourself and then you're layering it on top of more lies and more lies. And you're just trying to like do all the functional parts of it. Make excuses and, 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 and say things that are just not true. Yeah. And it's, and it's unfair to both of you. It's unfair to the relationship. It's unfair to everyone involved. So 
this all comes to a head at some point. Like, how how did the uh, the marriage end? She had gone home to her parents because we had actually had a conversation earlier about ending the marriage because things just weren't working. Sexually, it wasn't working. Everyone was miserable. During the day, my ex-wife had called and she goes, oh, you know, I've been thinking about all of our issues and I've been thinking about how we can resolve certain things and blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay. And I said, well, and then she's like, oh, you know, I was thinking about our issues with your mom. And I said, mom's not the problem. And she goes, what? And I was like, and then I pulled off. I remember I pulled off into this parking lot and I was driving at the time. I pulled off into the parking lot and I was like, uh, I was like, when you come back, we'll have a conversation. We'll, we'll talk about it then. She goes, no, no, no. We're talking about this right now. So we're on the phone and I just kind of went, I'm gay. And I started to, and I, and I remember hyperventilating. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I'm going to say this. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then she was like, oh, actually the first thing she said is, um, my brother's getting married next year. Oh my God, I can't have another divorce. She had previously been divorced. And then she also said, and then after that, she was like, oh my God, who else knows? Oh, does your best friend know? Oh, and then she stopped and then she goes, what am I saying? Are you okay? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know where I am right now. Like, it, this is insane. I don't know what I'm saying. And then she was like, you need to tell your family today. And I was like, okay. She's like, I have to tell my family. I need support. You need to tell You need to tell your family today. And then that day, the next day, which was a Wednesday, um, it was September 23rd, 2015. I will never forget. <laughs> I contacted all my siblings and their husbands. And I said, can you guys all come over tonight? Nobody came over and I just sat in a room with my siblings and I said, I'm getting a divorce and I'm gay. And I remember looking across the room and I remember my sister and my brother-in-law, one of them, two of them were like, yeah, that feels right. Like it was just, yeah. that was it. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, and that's how I came out to literally everybody in my life, <laughs> and all my, my family and then my um and Most everybody I, not surprised, or or were there everybody surprises? was kind of like okay, nobody was super surprised at all, um, and so everybody just kind of went with it. Everybody was checking in on me, and then you know my mom was literally sitting there in shock. We shouldn't say anything, um, and then she said probably the worst thing she could have said, which I think she would take back. I hope she would take back at this point, which was, which was why um, I'm just glad your dad's dead right now. That's what she said to me, and it it, it, it that's, that's stung. But it was also one of those things that I was kind of like, yeah, I kind of am glad too right now, <laughs> right in the moment I am. You know, v- very quickly before we wrap up, um, I first want to commend you on your tremendous um, bravery, courage. Not only, I mean, in this conversation, I mean, you're doing some really courageous stuff, and I, and I appreciate the candor. And thank you so much. It's it's incredible. Just just for furthering the understanding, um, is there is there is there one large lesson that you'd like to give anybody who's listening um, to this that you've learned from this whole experience? I would say the biggest lesson is being authentic with yourself is the beginning of everything. The minute you bring your full self, um, and not that everybody, and I'm not a big believer that everybody has to come out. I think everybody has their own journey. I think it's about coming out to yourself, living your life as authentically as you want to live it. Um, mm. I just think it's huge. For me, coming out was very important. Um, now I live a very full life. I mean, I currently live with my boyfriend. I live downtown. I'm like, it's a whole different world that I, I, I constantly am like, wow, I didn't even know this life existed. 
you know, once upon a time, I have a wonderful group of friends. Like, it's just my whole life has changed. It's done like a full 180, and it's incredible. Um, it's just you have to you have to break through that terror, that 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 paralyzing fear. Um, whether that's for yourself, whether that's to tell somebody you love, whether that's whatever that looks like for you, um, to be your most authentic self, living your most incredible life, right? Um, I mean, you, you just see, you just seem. You seem, I mean, I don't know what you're going through currently, but you do seem lighter or at least uh, clearer on, on what's happening in your life currently. Oh, it's a, and I'll be quite honest, it's a constant journey. Like, I mean, I think yeah. there's so many things that come out. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm a big proponent of therapy. I'm, I'm so happy to be in it now, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and it's helped me work through a lot of things. And I think those things, um, those things are incredible. I've been very lucky because I have an incredibly supportive family um, who have supported me. I, you know, who have supported me through the whole journey, who have defended me, who have done everything that I could have ever asked for. I also feel like at this point, I'm a 45 year old man. You know what? I don't need, and it sounds horrible to say this, but I don't need anyone's validation. It's nice to have it, but I don't need it anymore. Um, but it is nice to be loved by your family and for them to accept your partner as family and them and you know and my partner and i having the most honest relationship with each other um you know sometimes i like when we moved in together there's so much ptsd stuff that came up you know uh, with my marriage when i moved in with a man which i did not expect right so it's a constant struggle it's a constant thing that you work through thank you so much for everything you shared today thank you so much we appreciate it thank you so much i'm so happy to can i just tell you guys that like you got to just let people be like you would avoid we can avoid so much confusion and issues and problems if we just allow people to be themselves, right? Like listen to Prob Jolt's story. It's like how much pain and heartache could he have avoided that has permeated through his life, his uh, ex-wife's life, his family's life if he just had the environment where he was able to be himself, comfortable to be himself. It would have changed everything and saved everyone so much time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. One thing that comes up a lot in these discussions is family. And in in certain cultural communities, family is everything. And you'll notice, like, Prabjot started and ended his thoughts, and it had to do with his family. Just the rejection of family, the fear of rejection of family, it, it just so, it just hits to the core of, of who you are. It adds so much pressure and pain and isolation, and it makes all of those things so much worse and intense. Emery, when you talked about family and the importance of family, this is the irony I always fall on. So he got pushed into a marriage um, and really a stalled life until around the idea of his responsibility to his family about his love for his family. But the reality is that a loving family would allow you to be who you are. So the idea that you have to check yourself at the door for your responsibility to your family, but your family is not willing to do the same back. Therefore, by definition, there are not strong family values there. Yeah. Um, And a lot, listen, once again, cultural. 
you know, culture is a real, culture is a thing, as we would say, <laughs> man. It's a thing because, I mean, uh, you know, if the if the culture doesn't allow it, how far are you willing to go to uh, to lie to yourself and to those around you? And at, at, at what expense? It's really amazing to me. Candy, what you just said is so, it's just stirring and buzzing around in my brain about what are family values. And if your family values are love and acceptance, protection, anything that you would mm-hmm. ascribe to family values, does it work both ways? I think it's also uh, worthy noting that when he did finally come out, his sisters weren't surprised and were probably a bit more supportive than anybody in his family or m- the most supportive in his family, um, which is you know, which is good. But once again, you know, the cultural pressure he had on himself cost him some really, um, some really significant mental health struggles that he didn't deserve. And his wife didn't deserve, his ex-wife didn't deserve. Um, it's just, it's a shame that it has to go down like that. So speaking of family, up next, we have Pretty Kumar. Uh, her story also touches on family stigma, resilience, and how therapy and the right therapy can save someone's life. Priti Kumar grew up in Guyana. It was a traditional setup with multiple family members in the household with very little understanding of mental health. But things changed once she moved to Toronto, where she had the time and space to understand and explore her identity, only to have one of the most important relationships in her life with her mother break down. Here to tell us more is Priti Kumar. Priti, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. To get into the background of your story, you grew up in Guyana. What was your relationship like with your family? I have a very complicated relationship with my family. Um, my Growing up in Guyana was actually a very violent uh, childhood upbringing with my parents. A lot of domestic violence um, between my mom and dad, uh, years of abuse, um, physical violence, alcoholism, drinking. So... I grew up in a very, I say, um, abusive household and had an abusive uh, childhood. And it was very normalized in, in Guyana. It's only after migrating to Toronto that, and, and reflecting, um, I realized how, how violent my upbringing, my upbringing was in Guyana. And, you know, eventually after many years of, of that abuse, my, my mother, um, you know, decided to leave my father and file for divorce. And, um, you know, the marriage came to an end after after 18 years of like living with with this kind of relationship with, with my father. Preeti, in your family understanding when you were growing up, was there an understanding of the importance of mental health? How was that interpreted? Well, growing up in, so I'm, I'm Guyanese. I grew up in a very traditional household um, in a rural countryside. And I think context matters a lot um, when we talk about mental health. The simple answer is no, there is no uh, understanding. There is no conversation about mental health, even until now, despite migration and a lot of changes and opportunities. And I think I think part of the, the issue uh, growing up in, in the countryside or in a very village uh, close-knit community is that mental health is generally associated with like spirituality and it's seen as um you know a, a, like a curse in um in hinduism it's seen as like you're born that way and um, it's associated with madness mm-hmm. um and if you if you talk about mental health it's almost like you have a spiritual problem and you need to consult a priest or a pundit or an imam to do a prayer for you so you can feel better you know, so it's very taboo. It's very, um, 
it's understood in that context, very taboo and not something that people talk about, but also people don't have the language. People don't have that understanding of what mental health is because that is not a conversation when I was a child. Like that was not even a category that people talked about mm-hmm. mental health. Um, it's a very new discourse that we have in society right now. Uh, so for these ideas to be in that context of, of growing up is, is, is not possible. Um, yes, they know the violence was not okay, but again, they a lot of people in the community think that, for example, violence is a way to show love. Bringing all of that together, your family background and the you know the generations of tradition that were gathered around and, and surround you, not to mention um, you know just the cultural context, being in a different country. You said you've always known that you were queer. Was there was an inner struggle in trying to understand that? So, what was that like? As a kid growing up in Guyana, that's also the thing. I, I didn't know queerness was a problem. I didn't know that being gay or lesbian or bisexual was was an issue. In, in Guyana growing up, I thought everybody felt the way I felt. Hmm. I thought everybody had these feelings. I thought it was the norm because I didn't know any different as a child. And when I moved to Toronto, it's actually 2001. You're around 10 or 11? Yes. Yeah. I remember watching so clearly on TV, like, you know, the, the uh, pride parade and people celebrating on the street and I was like what is this gay marriage like what is this gay like you know I didn't even know what the word meant mm-hmm. and then I you know I googled I was for some reason I just went straight to the books I went straight to the library I started google googling and and reading up and then I was like oh wow oh oh man this is a thing this is a problem oh and you interpreted it, you know, it as a problem yeah, because based on the readings, it's, you know, I understood enough to know that it was an issue. And this is not something you talk about in society, that this group just achieved something. I didn't understand what same-sex marriage meant, but I understood enough from the readings and from the stuff I watched to know that there was a struggle or people are mm-hmm. struggling to talk about their feelings about being gay. And that's when I also was like, oh my God, am I a lesbian? Am I gay? Like, even accepting those terms are very difficult for me. So that's why I prefer the term queer because I think it's more expansive and has a different a different connotation than lesbian and gay. Also in the Indo-Caribbean community, you know, very stigmatized terms. So for me, um, not having that awareness, not having that understanding, but knowing and thinking it was okay and then kind of coming to a realization that this is not okay kind of... No, from there on out in in my teens and in my 20s and so on, living a very secretive um, life, a very, a double life almost. You've described it as trying to curate yourself constantly to fit, to be someone I'm not. What does that mean? Or what did that look like for you? I never disclose to my family who I'm dating. I never bring home any of my partner. Well, my partners come over, but they would come over as a friend. Or, you know, the women I've dated in the past, when they would come by my house, my, you know, my family thought of them as my friend. Um, but I could never disclose my actual relationship or my my love or anything for my partners. Like, I was just so scared. Um, and I'm still scared until today. A part of me is still scared. What are you scared of? I, I think... I think the... the, the I fear the severance from my family. My family also has a history of when there are arguments and disputes, the way they solve these things is by severing the person out of their life completely. Um, and I, I, 
you know, in my life, I, I have my mom and my brother. And for me, it's if they reject me. I mean, my mother has already rejected me, but we, we talk. Um, but I, I, I fear just losing the two relationships that I have already with my mom and brother. As limited as it may be, I fear just losing that, you know, completely losing that at all. And, and then being really, really alone and outside of that blood family bond kind of structure. So uh, mm-hmm. when, I, when I talk about curating myself, it's, it's like me, I, you know, I, I, I change a piece of the picture to fit in when I'm at home. I change, a, I change myself when I go out. Um, I, I make sure that if my partners, come, when they come home, we never sit close to each other, for example. You know, we never sit on the same couch. Um, you know, we, we don't display any kind of physical or flirtatious comments, anything um, that would reveal uh, who I am to my parents or my mom and my brother. Sorry. That sounds exhausting. It is very exhausting. It is very, very exhausting to be queer, to be a woman of color um, and to come from this upbringing and, and childhood. And, and it's it's exhausting because you're you're trying to fit yourself into different into a different standard and module that, that you just can't and uh, eventually that that um, you know it led to me like ending one of the most important relationships of my life because I just I just couldn't go against um, my mom I couldn't go against when she found out um, that I was queer. I, I, you know, it took a huge, what I'm saying, it took a huge impact on my relationship. Um, my mom finding out and her re- response and rejection and how that played out in my relationship. So you're absolutely right. It's heartbreaking to know that a relationship that was so close when you had witnessed your mom's uh, your ab- abuse and then sh- the leaving. And so the bond that would be there between you and your mom and your brother when it's just the three of you. And then you come to a new country, which is even more bonding and, and fuses you even closer together. But in order to have love in the way you want to experience it in a relationship uh, of your own, that you had to lose one that was so close with another female in your life being your mom. Uh, can you, do you mind to share the story about how your mom found out? Yeah, I I was um, so my partner at that time was traveling, and um, you know she sent me emails because of the time difference. We were also young; we were in our early twenties when we met and started dating. Um, and so this was about 20, 24, 25 when my mom found out. Um, she read my emails. Um, I had lent her my cell phone oh, to use for the day or something, and my email was open on my Gmail. And of course, there's no such thing as privacy in a, you know, a brown household with your mother. There's, there, there's no such thing as privacy. You know, it blows my mind. My mom doesn't knock on the door. She just opens the door and walks in, you know. Um, so she read my emails and, um, you know, I, she was at the mall and I went to pick her up from the mall because that, that previous night I had spent the night at my friend's place. Anyways, I was on my way home and she called me and she asked me to pick her up from the mall, but I knew instantly, I knew something was wrong. I could tell mm. from the tone of her voice. So I go to the mall, I, I park the car, I go to the SDC in Scarborough. And my mom is just like leaned over this, the glass railing. And my mom starts crying in the mall and says, how could I do this to her? Oh, how, how could, could I you betray do this Yeah, how could I betray her like this? And she then proceeds to say she's going to commit suicide and she is going to, um, 
she's going to end her life. How could I? Just just re- reiterating those statements many times. And we're in the mall and my mom is crying oh, and people are walking by and I'm like trying to hold it all together. My, my emotions, my feelings, my tears and the public, you know, the public is looking at us. My mom is crying and she's talking about committing suicide. And, oh. and I think, I think what remained with me was like, just, yeah, she may have said it in heart and whatever, whatever her reasons are. I don't know in what context she meant but it just translated to me that, wow, my existence, my existence is so painful for you or mm. who and what I am and, or who I choose to love or be with is so painful that su- you think of suicide. Wow. And, yeah. and I think, I think, I think when a mother says that to a child, there's nothing mm. more painful because it's not just like your mom is angry at you and she yells at you or she says, I'm, I'm mad. I, I, you know, get out of my house or I'm going to kick you out or something like that. You know, she, you know, she says suicide. Like she doesn't want to be a part of this world because my existence mm. is so threatening to her or so, so much of a betrayal to her existence. And so that's how um, she found out. And she didn't talk. We lived in the same household. Um, the next day, basically what happened was that I made it clear that this is who I am. I'm not going to change. If you wow, pretty good for you. I'm here, Um, and I kind of like left it up to her. But my mom, my mom, what she proceeded to do was, um, you know, not talk to me for months. So I would live in the same house, but my mom would not speak to me only out of necessity. Um, If if I was in the living room, she would get up and go in the kitchen. You know. And I started behaving. So I was with my partner at that time who sent me those emails. Um, she, you know, when I would be with my partner now, I was so anxious about going home. Um, because my, if I went home at, a, at too late, if I went home at like 10 o'clock in the night, my mom would just not talk to me for weeks. So when I was with my partner, I was anxious about my mother. When I was with my mother, I was anxious about not being with my partner. You know, I, I couldn't spend the night over because that meant, um, you know, silence is a is a, a weapon. Silence is a form of punishment. So no, no safety in either relationship. Or you weren't feeling any safety in either relationship then. I wasn't feeling grounded or stable. I wasn't feeling, I, 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 like, I think the word is present. I wasn't feeling present in either relationship. And I, th- and I, for me, that, that, this encounter, this experience with my mother is what triggered my mental health and how I unravel from there on out. That is the moment I can pinpoint definitively of how, you know, that rejection, that isolation, that loneliness. Eventually, over time, she started talking to me, but um, the damage was done in my relationship. So that relationships, my relationship started to deteriorate further and further and, and it ended it ended up ending. So, you know, it has a lot of consequences for me. Pretty, you mentioned that you, that living under that, living in that, that rejection and the silence, and that is what you feel contributed to what you called your unraveling or the breaking down of your mental health. What did that look like for you? Um, I was, I think, third year into my PhD. Um, I would wake up early in the morning get my stuff, get my books and leave before my mom left the house for work, just so I didn't have to see her or face her. But I would get to my partner's place at that time and I would just lie on the sofa for hours. Because 
and and I didn't know what was happening. I had no energy. I couldn't focus. I just cried. Um, she, you know, my partner would be like, "Oh, let's go for an ice cream," and I I didn't want to go. I like I just couldn't move. Um, and I I couldn't focus on anything. I I couldn't. I was just sad all the time and and unhappy no matter what she tried to do with me or do for me it never was enough or made me happy um I I felt completely checked out I wasn't present in my life I wasn't present for my partner I wasn't present in reality so you know then five six like seven eight o'clock would come in the night and I would drive home because I knew my mom at that point would be like almost you know getting herself together to go to bed or she would be in her room watching tv so i would come home at a time where i knew that i wouldn't have to also interact with her and i did that for months upon months in order to just i think survive um mm. because i didn't i didn't have enough to move out and i didn't i my partner did offer to move out and live with her but i, I couldn't do it i couldn't because for me i the, the upbringing i came with was i could not I felt like if I moved out I would be completely severing that relationship with my mother. And I think as a young 25-year-old, 26-year-old, you 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 kind of want to make it work. You kind of want to be yeah. like, "Okay, mom, are you there? Are you going to come around? Are you going to you know, you're waiting for your mother to come to it's you." It's your mom. Yeah. At some point you decided that you needed to get some help. And when you did, what did you look for in a therapist? Oh, well, definitely a queer therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted a woman. I didn't feel comfortable um, seeing a male therapist uh, at that point in time in my life because of, I think, the violence of my childhood and, you know, my relationship with masculinity. I wanted a woman, and I also wanted a brown, a brown woman or a woman of color. Mm-hmm. So because I, I felt like there were certain things that they would, uh, grasp by virtue of being a, a person of color that I wouldn't need to spend $150 on a therapy session explaining to a white therapist what this means in my culture or, you know, the background kind of context piece. So I needed somebody who could, and also I think in that moment, I just needed somebody who was going to help me survive. Mm-hmm. I needed to see myself being reflected in the world. And I, I needed to see you know, and I think this is why my very my very first therapist, like it was a very complicated, I think it was a very complicated relationship because she represented to me an aspect of myself in the world. Hmm. You know, she was somebody who had a successful career. She had a partnership. She's well known. She's a public figure. And she represented to me a possibility. And I think that helped save, save me. Therapy, to be completely honest, therapy saved my life. If it wasn't for therapy, I... I think I would have committed suicide a long time ago. Um, she represented, because in social media in you know the mid-2000s or you know late 2000s, I didn't see queer people of color. I didn't see anybody from my community. Can I ask you pretty, really quickly, um, you were a student at the time and you uh, were, you know, you're a single parent household. How did you pay for therapy? And I ask that question because it's a barrier for a lot of people. Definitely. Um, at that point, I was I was very privileged, and I was very privileged. I was going to York University, and through our student, uh, gra- the union membership, when you're a graduate student, you had X amount of money for um, you know s- certain services, physiotherapy, 
uh, therapy was one of them. And um, I don't know, a couple of massage therapy and things like that. So I decided to use my, my money that, you know, the insurance covered to see a therapist. And, uh, and also recognizing like if I didn't have that, probably I would have also never got to see a therapist. And I think that was one of the smartest choice I made as a 26-year-old, 27-year-old to go to therapy and be like, I'm going to go to therapy because I don't know, something is wrong. I don't know what's wrong, but I'm going to go. And and so I used that opportunity to go, but I, I completely am aware and humble to know that I had that opportunity that I could capitalize on that a lot of people don't. And I think a lot of queer POC people don't have that. And I think that's why mental health and being queer or trans or whatever our, our social identity is, it's, it's so impactful because we don't have the spaces to work through these, these issues that we're facing. It's also something at this point in time I, I'm unwilling to compromise on. It's a non-negotiable in my life. Um, because it helps me discover more and more of myself um, in in the process. Yeah. If anybody out there is listening and has ever wondered about the value of investing uh, in therapy and mental health care, your story is a great one. But if there's anybody out there also listening who is able to help fund therapists uh, like who you visited, somebody who you could be reflected in. So just hearing your story is just such an, a, a reminder of why that is so important and to make those funds available for people to help out. Definitely. Pretty, I feel like I could talk to you all afternoon, but unfortunately I can't. So I, <laughs> I, I wanted to end with saying if someone is listening out there, someone who might identify as queer and POC and who might be struggling and reaching out for help, what do you want to say to them? <sighs> you are a lot stronger than you think. You are definitely a lot stronger than you think that anybody has led you to believe and Perhaps that society will continue to try to tell you that you're not strong, but um, you are strong and you are resourceful and resilient and you can find a way in spite of your limitations, you can find a way to make this life a beautiful one as a queer person. Thank you, Pretty. Thank you. I so appreciate when, uh, you know, people join us on the podcast and they share their stories. You know, for Pretty to go back to that time, that was so painful, that story of, you know, meeting her mom at the Scarborough Town Center and just knowing that something had changed in their relationship and how how she journeyed through all of that and found the right therapy and, and to get the help she needed. I know that's not everybody's story, but I was so appreciative of her sharing it. There were a couple times in our interview where she, you know, the emotions of it all came through. And, um... I know even afterwards, she was sitting in that for a little bit. So again, I'm just so appreciative when people come and share their stories, knowing that there are going to be people listening, that it's hitting in the exact same way. You know, I think parents, they need to really take a look at the big picture. First of all, sometimes people ask me, how, you know, how can I be an ally? And I always say, you become an ally by showing people who you are. So when I was young, I, you know, I had crushes on boys, I dated boys, I had a couple of crushes on girls, but it excuse me, never dawned on me that I would grow up and meet a woman and fall in love. But I remember being 12 and coming home from school. And, you know, my dad and I, we cry at Olympic commercials, but my mother, you never saw cry. And my mom was sitting at the table and she was crying. And I, you know, she gave me my little after school snack and I sort of had one ear on her trying to figure out what was happening. And my dad came in and she explained that she had just heard, um, 
a young fellow that lived in our neighborhood that used to be a friend of my sister's who moved away young because he was light in the loafers is how they used to refer to it back then. He had, um, he was in Montreal. He had contracted AIDS. His partner had died. He was alone in a hostel dying. And he wrote a letter home to his mother. to ask, He said he was scared to be alone. And he asked if he could come home to die. And she said, no. And my mother was sitting at the table crying. And she was saying, what mother could reject their child for any reason? let alone a reason that ridiculous. And you know, I was 12 with no idea I was ever going to fall in love with a woman, but when at 32, I met my wife. Somebody said to me, how do you think your parents are going to react to this? I said, I already know. I already know how my mother's going to react to this because my mother showed me who she was 20, 20 some years ago. So that idea of, and you know, my mom went on to lose uh, her oldest. My brother, Billy, died of cancer at 50. And I remember her saying then, you know, these parents that reject their children for something like this. Do you know what it is to really lose your child, to have your child die on you? You should be so happy that your child is alive. And I just, I, I, I feel sorry for these parents that can't see that. It's so sad. It's so sad. You know, just the cultural component, man, you get, it has to be talked about. And I, and I, I, I would hope anyone gets help that's culturally um, relevant and relative to to them. Because I, I know in Caribbean households, man, su- it's such a taboo subject, sexuality, especially when you're talking about folks that are LGBTQ+. Uh, plus. It, it's, it's so taboo that much like the story you just told, you will hear these stories of people who will disown their, their kids to, to the death because of it. And it, it's hard. It's hard. The other piece that stood out to me in Preeti's story was about feeling really, um, feel the, the, the idea that she went to research um, what hate looked like towards, um, towards being gay. I, I thought that was really interesting, that she would see this on TV and think, why, why would people be angry about this? Why is there something wrong with this? And then having to research and to look to see what the negative side of that actually looked like, that she didn't identify with any of the negative side of that, that that was what was imposed, I thought was re- like, what a journey she has been on alone. Definitely. And that it, it, the, the hate defies logic. So, so if you haven't grown up seeing it, it would, it would be a strange experience. When you talk about culture, I, I always reflect back on my mother was white and my father was Mi'kmaq. They've both passed on now. But in 1940, when they got married, my mother lost her family in the deal because they they just couldn't accept their white daughter falling in love with this big Mi'kmaq man. And I remember asking my mom when she was in her 80s, I said, you know, you were old when I brought Denise home and you were so open and, and loving and her and Denise got along very, very well. And um, And she said to me, and this hadn't even dawned on me until that moment, she said to me, sweetheart, they tried to deny me my love. I would never deny you yours. Oh, that's beautiful. And yeah, that was such a, uh, you know, a, a moment for me to realize, right, she gave up everything to love my dad. She was not going to make me do the same thing. Anyway, stay where you are because there's lots more. Up next, we meet Levi Naherney, who shares his journey of gender identity and transition. Levi Naherney says he was three years old when he asked his mom, why wasn't he a boy? It's been a lifelong journey of acceptance for Levi, from being adopted as twin sisters from Vietnam, 
growing up female, and then finally coming out and transitioning with the support of his family, all while dealing with mental health struggles. It's a story of resilience and inspiration. Levi, we're so happy you're here. You and your birds who I can hear chirping in the background. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to do this. Now, you've said how even though you were assigned female at birth, you always knew you were a boy. What were some of those initial feelings that you had? Well, so for starters, um, growing up, I was never able to really fit in with, you know, the girls or, or the boys, really. So when um, I started realizing that I was different from all the other girls is when I, mostly when we were in, like, early elementary school where I wanted to play with the guys and like as soon as my parents let me dress myself I went over to the uh boys section of the uh, of like the store and I wanted to get Spider-Man shirts or Batman shirts or whatever like that and I think that was like maybe the first subtle like thing that I thought might be a bit different than other uh, other girls because they would always dress in like pink or like you know more from I wouldn't say flamboyant colors but like more uh more brighter colors than what i would have chosen right now you know you've had a lot of experiences that were different from other people getting adopted uh from vietnam as a twin with a twin sister can you talk a little bit about your memories of that or what or what you know about the story uh so me and my sister grew up knowing that we were adopted we had a giant we had a a huge uh support group that we grew up with who were all adopted from Vietnam. And that, I think, really helped take off the blow from, you know, getting that bomb of being like, hey, you're adopted. Um, so we, uh, from, uh, from what I know about being adopted is that me and my sister were from Vietnam. Uh, we had a mom and a dad. Um, we never got to meet a dad, but we did end up meeting our mom and uh, grandmother and uncles and all the cousins. And um, we found out later in life that we had a little brother and a little sister, which was really nice to, you know, know that we have more siblings that isn't just us. Um, Growing up, knowing that we were adopted, other kids knew that we were adopted and was never... From what I remember, no one was rude about it. They just kind of accepted it. And it was just a part of, like, it It didn't really give me a huge impact until I was about 16 where I really thought about being adopted, I guess. And were you and your sister, like, tight as twins? Growing up, um, my sister was actually a really big bully to me. <laughs> um really? Yeah, she, uh, she, um, we, uh, like, mainly through high school and stuff, but that was when we were, you know, the whole change was going, we were going through puberty at the same time, and it was, I think it was hard on her for the main reason that she didn't understand it, I barely understood it myself, I just knew I didn't want to be a girl, um, but as as we got older, me and my sister got closer and closer. So after maybe 10th grade, my, instead of my sister, like, B, 
being uh, being mean to me and stuff like that. She ended up like starting to protect me and making sure that I was okay at school and made sure that no one was being rude towards me or anything like that. So I think uh, as soon as like it was, I as soon as we both understood and were able to come to terms with like my tr- uh, my transition and just us in general cuz every sibling fights right like oh yes uh, like every almost every sibling fights there's not a sibling uh, not any pair of siblings that i know who haven't had like a huge uh, argument so i was just ended up happening more often growing up and then as soon as we got older they almost completely stopped I love that when it really mattered, that's when she that's when she showed up for you. Yeah. Let me ask you this. When you were when you were young and you knew you didn't want to be a girl, did you have language for it yet? Like did you know that there was such thing as transgender? Did you know you weren't the only person out there not identifying with with the gender they gave you? So when I discovered what being trans was, I was watching um, a documentary about this other trans girl. And I was like looking up different uh, documentaries about being trans. And I found uh, Jazz Jennings, of course, um, as my first role model as being trans. And I was just like, huh, I didn't know guys could uh, guys could go into girls. And then thought to myself, maybe I could do the same, but a girl going into a guy. And that that's kind of what I was thinking. I was originally thinking, and I was like, "Oh no, that will never work." So I just kind of buried it down a little bit, and was like, "You know what? I should just live with the gender that I have." And I actually gave myself a lot of. Um, I, I gave myself a lot of inter, uh, internal uh, transphobia that I just didn't think it was right because I was trans and I didn't want to accept the fact that it was going to be like, eventually it was going to be okay for me. Talk about the toll that had on your mental health, having all that self-loathing and self-hatred running through you. I had really bad. Uh, I, st- uh, I still struggle with mental health issues. Um, I think around that time, that was one of my, uh, one of my really low points. Um, I, uh, when I was getting around to that, I started, um, self-harming and I stopped eating. I was put on uh, antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication. Um, I was going to therapy every, uh, every so often, but I didn't, I didn't like talking to therapists, but my mom wanted me to go to a therapist. So throughout those years of me self-dreading, even parts where I was already out and as trans, I was still not like accepting myself as someone, uh, someone who could do this. So I would still go to therapy and I wouldn't talk to the therapist. We went through, I think, eight to nine therapists where I would just sit there and I wouldn't talk to them unless they gave me questions. Wow. Now, I wonder, um, I was so happy when I heard you were going to be on the show. Um, as a member of the queer community myself, the the argument I'm always making is that um, as trans people make their way in the world, I hear a lot of trans, the voices of a lot of trans women, but I don't hear the voices of a lot of trans men. 
And I wonder when you were having that thought of, you know, okay, I, I see these prominent women who have transitioned, but I can't transition the other way. Do you think that's because there were, there were not a lot of trans men with a high public profile? I believe that like when I, I did see a couple of uh, trans men online and documentaries, uh, there was this uh, documentary about um, this trans man who was pregnant, uh, trans man who was uh, pregnant. I think his name was Thomas something. I don't remember what his last name was, but it was back in t- uh, 2012 or something like that where I watched that and I was very shocked to see that he was a trans man because I, I was just, I, I was blown away because of how amazing that he looked and I realized that that's what I wanted to look like. And not saying that any trans girl doesn't look beautiful because they do, but um, it was a lot more, for me, it was a lot more eye-opening seeing these uh, these trans men. I, I wouldn't say that I'm able to pinpoint a role model in the trans community uh, for a trans man. And I would love to see more trans men talk about their stories and talk about who they are and who they're becoming, because I, f- I feel like there should be a lot more advoca- advocacy for trans men, because we don't have that. Yeah, I totally agree, which is why I'm so glad you're willing to come and, and do this. It, now, if we can talk back about um, your high school days, I was just thinking you're, you're a twin, and your sister is in school with you while you're starting your transition period. What was that like for her? Like, did people look at her and say, so what's up? Are you a boy too? Like, how did that roll out? Um, so how that worked, I don't, uh, my sister would probably be able to explain this a lot better than I would. But uh, from what, the interviews that uh, we were, that we've done so far and how she was also asked that question is that a lot of people did assume because we are identical twins that she was also going to come out as trans as well or come out as another part of the LGBT community. And so because of that, she got very hyper-feminine where she was starting to dress a lot more feminine than what I would have so people would be able to tell the difference that she's not going to be, she's not going to come out as trans. That's not who she is. And she, uh, though she isn't part of the LG, uh, LGBT community, she's still a giant ally to the community. Mm. And boy, do we need allies. Oh, 100%. When you transitioned, was there any sort of sadness around the fact that you didn't look like your twin anymore? No. <laughs> and, what about for, and what about for her? I don't think... She was upset about that as much as people think that she is. Because okay. um, genetically, we do still have the face, uh, the same face. We still look, we still look the same. It's just kind of like one, uh, one of us is a different gender, basically. Right. So nothing really about us like is too different. The only, I guess, the only difference about our faces at this point and about how we look is that my my features are a lot more masculine than hers are. Right. 
Mm. Uh, well, I'll tell you, as a woman going through menopause, you can tell your sister, she's going to get some masculine things like hairs on her chin at some point in her life. So <laughs> she'll be dealing with that too. Listen, you talked about her being an ally. Did you have other allies in high school? Like were there, were there some, you know, soft places to fall? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, I had many, uh, many friends who were part of the LGBT community around me. I had people who went and just loved to hang out with me, and they supported me throughout whatever they, uh, what whatever they could support me through. And I had the so I was I moved around high schools a lot. At one point, I was in a private school, and from what I knew then, I was the only trans person and person in the LGBT community at the time in that high school. And it was a very small high school. So everyone knew each other. And it was a really scary experience being the only trans person there. And then about two years later, after I left that high school, I found out that more than half of the people in that school came out as part of the LGBT community. And it wow. was, it was, it was really nice to know that after I left, it kind of, I felt like I kind of made an impact on them for, because I was, when I was in that school, I was very open about who I was and I will always be open about who I am. I have no shame about being trans or being in the LGBT community at all. So if people have questions for me, I'm going to answer those questions, whether they're rude or not, and I'm going to give them an actual answer instead of avoiding the question. So in that, in that school, I definitely had a lot, of, a lot of allies, but also a lot of people there who were just the same as I was, just a lot yeah. of them buried them down as well. So it was really nice to see the people who I didn't realize was in the LGBT community to come out as someone in the LGBT community. So trailblazing all your life at this point, which is something to be proud of, but it also can take a toll. I'm just wondering, like, how at this point in your life, how are you feeling mentally? Like, are you are you in a good space? What's happening? Um. In my mental health is, I, w I wouldn't say the best, but I wouldn't say, like, not manage manageable. Um, okay. I was just, uh, I recently just got off of my medications uh, for my depression. And, um, but hopefully I, uh, hopefully I am uh, working with um, my psychologist to see if, or psychiatrist to see if I can get medications for uh, the right medications uh, for some of my mental health issues. Good. I wish you a lot of luck with that. Thank you. I wonder, um, just as the last question I want to ask you before I let you go today, um, if you think about all, like right now, listening to us right now as we talk, all those little kids that are out there that, that might be listening that are feeling like, no, this is not who I am, what are the words of advice that you would have for them? You can figure it out on your own time. Really, it's not something that finding who you are is not something that you need to rush. If you haven't noticed in the media, there's been, uh, there's been multiple people in this world who have come out in a later date 
other than your early teens. You've seen Elliot Page, Caitlyn Jenner, both of them came out a lot later than than I came. Uh, well, I guess Caitlyn Jenner came out came out the same time as I did, around the same time. But um, you, it's just something that you need to know is that people are going to come out when they're old, when they're young. You don't need to rush to find out who you are, whether it's sexuality, gender, or anything really. You just you figure out those things on your own time, and that's okay. Whenever you do, that's when you can feel a relief. My man, you are wise beyond your years because that is some <laughs> that is some solid advice for anyone. You do not have to rush, have to rush figuring out just who you are. Levi, I want to thank you so much, and I want to wish you all the best in the rest of your journey. Thank you so much, Candy. This was a lot of fun. Well, that young man <laughs> was an old soul. What? Don't you agree? Very wise and very solid in his uh, his resolution about how to deal with things. I, I think people need to hear that. And I like that he talked about seeing what other people were going through. He mentioned Caitlin and uh, I think it was Thomas Beattie. That's the individual he was talking about. That was a very, very uh, big publicized story. But seeing that gave him a, a, a sense of peace and courage. I love his resolution to not be rushed to want to do it well, to respect himself, to do it well. And I think, like you said, Candy, so much wisdom in that. You can tell he's a, he watches and he thinks. And what I find so remarkable about that, and I see this more and more often, is that when you, when you choose the speed, when you say, this is the process for me, other people come in line to that. Not everybody, but it really encourages people to say, I'm going to I'm going to go at the pace of your journey with you or at least it gives them a guide. Yeah, I just thought regardless of who's listening, regardless of your orientation, your gender, uh your race, the advice that first of all, there's only one person you can be and that's you, but that you can take your whole life to figure out who exactly that is. So good. Uh, coming up, we have another great conversation. Psychotherapist Tanil Brown is joining us with context, some insights in how to best understand some of the stories we've just heard. Earlier in the show, we heard some some great stories about acceptance and what acceptance can do for somebody when they receive it um, from those that they love and in their community. Living a life that's true to who you are and just some of the barriers to getting there. Here to help us unpack all of that is psychotherapist Tanil Brown. Uh, Tanil, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, all. Hello. Hello, community. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. What an amazing topic we have to discuss. So let's get right into it. We we know that the BIPOC LGBTQ plus community faces a lot of discrimination and stigma. Uh, tell us some more about the mental uh, health impacts of these negative experiences. Well, I think there, there's many, and I think our guests did a really great job uh, of sort of describing some of the experiences that so many of the folks uh, that come into psychotherapy with me experience. Um, but I wanted to, to coin, point out a couple of things. I, that piece about uh, not necessarily feeling connected, that, that piece about struggling with relationships, with family, uh, with really coming to terms with one's own identity. Those are some of the things that I think cause the most challenges for folks um, in terms of, of what, I, what I see. 
So then what advice do you have for people who are trying to navigate that idea of traditional family structure and stigma when it comes to sharing the identity or orientations? And how do they how do they get through when there's no understanding? I mean, we we spoke about this after one of the interviews. You know, Jamar was you know underscoring this when there is no understanding even in culture. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that that was kind of uh, one of the themes that I think was just was so clear with what everybody said and and relationships. Let's face it, everybody that that really relationships are our greatest joys and our deepest traumas. <laughs> in a lot of ways, you know, we're always searching for and wanting and needing unconditional love and support. And for so many of us, when we come out, we really realize that the love that we had with some of our family actually had conditions. And that's quite, you know, it can be quite difficult to deal with that. So I think a large part of this is to sort of recognize that uh, when folks suppress their identity, often we're, we're suppressing our identities because we want to stay in relationships. But by doing that, we're actually sacrificing a relationship with ourselves. Some of the things that I think is just so massive with regards to sort of addressing this piece is recognizing that for, for some of us, uh, we actually need to leave family. Some folks might leave family for a period of time or or might have to permanently um, cut off some of their relationships with their, quote, birth family. Um, that's why I think it's so important uh, for us to find community. Folks talk about um, chosen family and, and how important that it's their transition. Um, some other folks, um, and I'm included in this, feel that we need to and must have some sort of connection to family. So how do you navigate this? I think some of the tips that I talk about the the most is is to really think about ways that you can um, connect with your family members in activity, doing things together, creating things together. And I think when it comes to culture, some of the things that I suggest is, um, you know, having activities that you're doing with your family members, whether that be um, doing a recipe together, going for walks, engaging in different things that are really a part of your culture. And I think there's two bonuses there. Number one, we're focusing on something. So we're not talking about my identity or my partner or <laughs> who you think I should be dating or any of those things. So we're, we're actually focusing on something that I think allows us to enjoy our family. Um, on the other hand, I think uh, for many of us, uh, it allows us as racialized folks to have access to culturally specific ways for us to heal. Um, hearing the stories about our ancestors, healing, um, being able to engage with some of our culture. So uh, when it comes to staying connected to our families, I find that those are some of the things that can be very helpful. I am so excited that you talked about relationship with self. I constantly, in terms uh, as an Indigenous woman, in terms of reconciliation, I'm constantly saying, you know, until we reconcile with ourselves, we are never going to get to a point where we can reconcile mm -hmm. with one another. Mm -hmm. But as I think about this, this uh, wonderfully wise young trans man that that we just spoke to, I, I'm I'm left thinking. Okay, he's he's BIPOC and he's trans. Like, can you talk about the barriers for a person in that situation to actually access good mental health and be able to be nurtured in a way that they can engage in that relationship with self? Absolutely. And I, and I think it, you know, it's so important to, to recognize that the, the different aspects um, of those identities bring with it both um, resiliency, strength, 
um, and, and a huge capacity to heal. And on the other hand, we know that, that folks experience all sorts of different types of discrimination and marginalization based on their identity. So, you know, it can, you know, what it feels like, and a lot of my clients have commented, is that you may be in a situation and not know which particular oppression is taking place at that time. <laughs> like, do you have an issue with me because yes. I'm black? Do you have an issue with me because I'm queer? Do you have an issue with me because I'm a woman? And, and in Levi's Absolutely. case, that, that, that really is kind of one of the prevalent ongoing issues. It's like you, it's coming at you from all angles. Um, and, and, and I often talk about, this is why it's so important for us to recognize that one, trauma is real, um, racialized trauma. And I actually talk about something called oppression trauma. So when oppression and marginalization happens to us frequently over a period of time, we internalize that. It impacts on our mental health. So um, I think it's really important to point out that we need to have tools to recognize what trauma is, recognize what mental health is, and, and ways to figure out how we address these triggers. Because it does come at you from all angles. Um, and, and yet, trauma does not need to stop in order for us to heal. I would suggest knowing and recognizing that you have multiple identities that are marginalized means that it's all the more important for you to have your toolbox in place, for you to have your support team in place um, so that you're able to not just survive folks. Like I'm tired of surviving. I'm ready to thrive. <laughs> and the folks yes, that are out I here, right there I'm tired. Let's face it. You know, healing is the way we make a change. Healing is activism. Um, so I think that hopefully that sort of helps Candy, but I, I think that, that it, that's really important to point out. It does. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to put you on the spot yeah. a little bit though. Um, so let's say, let's say Levi's out there and he's, he's looking for a therapist. Mm. Is it more important that he finds a therapist that understands his identity racially or is it more important that he finds a therapist that understands his identity in the trans world? Oh, wow. That is such a, that is such a great question. Um, I think it depends. And I, I, the, I, I say it depends because healing, depending on the aspect of, of your being that you're attempting to heal, that might make a difference in the type of person you're, you're seeking. Um, so Say, for example, if right now what's what's happening and what's most prevalent is that piece around having um, an environment where one has a therapist that really understands the culture, really understands sort of the, the different, not just the, the, the aspects of culture around, you know, um, how to understand the problems, but then also how to unlock and access healing and culturally specific types of healing. Um, I would suggest that for many people, having a space where they have a therapist that has that cultural understanding, um, that is very important. On the other hand, um, I really uh, am thinking about folks that have to be in therapy and teaching the therapist uh, about things like language or pronoun usage. And it's just so... Um, it's, it's just so difficult because, uh, you know, you in fact are training the therapist to help you. And so it's taking away from your experience. So it's a tricky one, but I think what I would say, um, is when you're seeking a therapist, first things first, I think you really want to read these profiles, you know, really look at uh, things like sh if they share why they do the work and what they offer to clients instead of just listing a bunch of credentials. I always say, you know, I have a master's degree, I'm a therapist, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? <laughs> Why am I doing this? You know, and I think that um, for um, queer community, trans community, um, for those of us, the racialized folks that are, are still looking, are also looking for that support, it's important for us to get a sense of why this person's doing this. 
Do they speak about their lived experience in their profile or in the consultation? Um, or does that feel like, you know, that's an aside to who they are? I think it should be centered in the work that they do. Um, I really suggest that you prepare some questions for that consultation that you're going into. And you ask about what expectations they might have for you in the work and how they assist people to heal. How do they facilitate them? So put that therapist on the spot. Make them work uh, to sort of describe some of the things that they might bring to you. Um, and finally, I always suggest suggest that, you know, don't just make a therapy appointment uh, with folks and, and just sort of say, oh, well, I'm going into therapy. Book an additional time when you can work on, um, I call it healing work time, where you're going to set that time aside to digest what you're learning in therapy, implement it, research things on your own and learn. So um, I think it, it kind of depends, depending on the therapist that you want. But I think in order to find somebody, um, it's important to find somebody with that lived experience, but then also somebody that's comfortable bringing that into the work, kind of regardless, um, you know, of their, of their background. You know, I think, I think the conversations we're having are so important just because for a lot of people, it's your first time hearing what somebody really is going through on a like nitty gritty micro level of the, their experience being, you know, BIPOC, LGBTQ plus, how it impacts the mental health. It actually makes it more vivid for me, at least. And it, it just begs the question for me, like now, now, how can I be an ally? How can I be a better ally? Um, and I'm sure a lot of people in, you know, whether it be family members, friends, community members want to know. What's the first step I could do to being the best person I can be to to this person? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really great question, and and the first thing that I think springs to mind is 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 first of all to to really focus on empathy and compassion, everybody, and not sympathy and pity. <laughs> that we don't want that. We're not interested in sympathy and pity. I think it's very easy for folks to kind of look at some of the challenges that we have as queer identified um, BIPOC folks and be like, oh my goodness, you poor dears, isn't this so horrible? Well, th the reality is, is while we struggle, many of us are thriving. Like, look at the folks that we've had today. My goodness, I, we, I tell you folks, healing is real, healing is possible. And my community is brilliant and inspiring. That's what I got from today, everybody. And uh, what? Oh, my goodness. You know, never, never underestimate that. So we need to strike the balance between really looking at the difficulty of these issues um, and, and earthing them and speaking honestly about them, but not tipping us towards pity and sympathy. I think we have to recognize that for many of us being queer, being non-binary, being trans, whatever, and being racialized is literally the best part of who we are. And regardless of the challenges, we wouldn't trade it for anything. So that's the first thing I think as an ally, just making sure you're staying in that compassion and empathy side of things and not moving to the other side of, of pity and sympathy. Um, I also think you need to heal your trauma. I think it's so important because unhealed trauma, um, allies are walking around with unhealed trauma and it's blocking their openness and compassion. So what you need to do as a family member is listen, encourage the exploration. You know, again, I'm thinking of what Levi said about don't rush. And so 
oftentimes family members can be supportive in echoing that message. Allow people to explore. Do your own research. Um, you know, your family member is not here to educate you. Um, you know, they're not here to assist you with your trauma. You might have feelings or reactions to their identity or to them coming out, but I would suggest that that's work that you can be doing so that you're prepared to offer that support. And and finally, I love this, this posture for allies. I often say mouth closed, heart open, and defenses down. That's what we need to be, folks. Keep your mouth closed because you cannot be listening if you're talking. That's awesome. <laughs> so that's the first thing, that's right? Awesome. And keep your heart open. And, and frankly, folks, it may be work. You may have to work through your own trauma. You might have to work through the effects of colonization and the ways that they've told us that there's a limited amount of sexual exploration and a limited amount of gender expression. When we know in all of our cultural communities, that just is not true. And so for many people, the open heart thing might be working through some of that pain. And then finally, defense is down, right? We, we need to be open and we need to listen and we need to create spaces for folks to fully be themselves. So I, I think it's so important for, for folks who don't have lived experience to, again, you know, leave this conversation with some things being like, you're not on the sidelines here. You can be involved in helping people to facilitate um, their healing and, and really making this a better place for us all to be ourselves. Um, I'm glad that there's no camera on this because I'm doing like wild cheers as I'm listening to you talk. <laughs> so good. Healing is real. Healing is possible. What a message to, to end on. And I love how you described mouth closed, heart open, defenses down and staying in compassion. So good. Tanil, um, just to wrap up, finally, can you share with us resources that will help people to better take care of themselves? Um, that's what people are really looking for is, I love what you have to say, where can I access this kind of help? Well, I think there's there's all sorts of resources online. I, I think that that where a lot of folks um, are are looking to to find a therapist, and and again, I, I want to shout out a particular site because I think what's happening, folks, is is there has more recognition that folks want to work with someone with lived experience. So there's a particular website that I often recommend, BlackTherapistList.com. Um, I'm shouting that out. That that's a, a a group of entrepreneurs, Black therapists like myself, who have created a space for folks to find um, other therapists uh, that have lived experience. Um, but I, I also think that, you know, some of the, the the more mainstream resources, places like Psychology Today, if you're, um, if you're based in Ontario as well, or if you're in another province, uh, different social work associations. I know we have the Ontario College of Social Workers and the Ontario Association for Social Workers. They each have websites where folks can actually look for therapists um, in their community and you can search based on uh, what that therapist focuses on, um, or the particular areas that area that they're that they're more have the most expertise. Um, but one of the things that I, I think folks can do: um, reach out, connect, find support. Um, but I do want to sort of mention that connection is so important, and I, I want folks to leave with that. I think we need friends, we need community. That's a way for us to heal. We need affirmation, we need validation and support. So mental health impacts on our connection to ourselves and others, and so healing happens, everybody, when we reconnect. So reconnecting can look like getting a therapist that has lived experience to support you. But many of the guests talked about doing their own research, walking, watching documentaries, um, you know, even going to a community event, joining a, a 
a baseball league or something. Um, I really want to encourage folks to find different ways to reconnect to themselves, to their spirit, to their body, um, and also to connect to others. So for some folks, that's going to be facilitated by working with a therapist. And for other folks, you can hang up this and stop listening to this podcast and start right away. <laughs> uh, I love that. We're going to let folks do that just now. Thank you so much, Tanil. Such a pleasure to speak with you. Practical wisdom. I love it. And an action plan. Take care. Thank you, everyone. I really appreciated the opportunity to be here. So proud and grateful to be a part of this discussion. Thank you. Today was such a great bunch of conversations. And I really hope that people will think of it in terms of this just this is just the tip of the iceberg. This is just to open the conversation. Now, when the kids get home from school, you have to sit at the supper table and you have to have these conversations as a family. That's how we're all going to really start to understand these matters better is when we start speaking about them with one another. I personally learned a lot about how to have conversations with people. And I think that sometimes that's even just part of the hurdle for family members and, and uh, just people close to you. You know, uh, sometimes you have uh, an inkling that something is going on with somebody and you're not sure if how to broach that subject or even talk to them about it. But I mean, the consequence of not having the conversation could be mm-hmm. huge. And, and, and it's better to have the conversation and do it the right way than not. Yeah, I think as somebody who looks to be an ally, I'm raising three kids, I want them to have the same posture. What I appreciate is having the language, which Tanil was such a great uh, contributor for that. Having the language, knowing the posture, staying in compassion, all of those things to to reframe how you're approaching that. Um, I so appreciated today, as well as, of course, our guests always for coming on and, and sharing their stories. Such a privilege. And you know, if if you just do things as simple as check your language. You know, for for the queer community, it is it is a nightmare to constantly have your your aunties or your mom and dad asking you, do you have oh, do you have a boyfriend? Do you have a girlfriend? You know, I always say when I'm talking to youngsters if I, if that's the question I want to ask, have you got a sweetie? I don't I I never genderize hmm. it. Uh you know, or or I'll just say to even adults when I interview them, I never ask gender specific i always say so are you living in love right now are you in are you in love are you happy or and then you know oh, they great. can they can take it from there but to constantly be genderizing the experience of love um it puts you know it puts a child on a back foot before they even have a chance to start discovering for themselves love is love people love is love i was love you know candy something that you said in our conversations today which i think is going to stay with me for a long time is there is the switching the lens on family values. Like what are actually the values that we say go into family values and how do we apply that? Where do we apply that? Are we living and walking it out? Such a good piece of wisdom. Also, thank you to everybody listening to right now. Um, Just taking the time to listen to the podcast and learning along with us. We also want to remind folks that this podcast is not a substitution for therapy and to please reach out to mental health professionals if you need help. For more information on that and what you heard on the show, head over to the podcast show notes or visit letstalk.bell.ca where you'll find links to resources, helpline numbers, and much more. And that wraps up our first season. Thank you so much for going on this journey with us. (laughs) Uh, We've all learned so much together. And uh, please share it with everyone you know or anybody you believe needs to hear uh, these topics that we've spoken about. Subscribe and uh, we'll be back, won't we? Absolutely. It was lovely. (laughs) Thank you so much for enjoying uh, these conversations on From Where We Stand. 
conversations on race and mental health.